I am so excited for today's bonus episode. You guys, you're in for such a treat because today our guest is religious scholar Donald Perry. Now, for those of you who listen to this podcast often, you know that I quote him a lot. And that's because, in my opinion, he has truly paid the price to become a Hebrew expert and a master scriptorian. And recently, he wrote a book titled 175 Temple Symbols and Their Meanings. So I wanted to ask him questions about temple symbols and how they deepen our understanding of Jesus Christ. Because if you're like me and you're really missing the temple, today's episode is the temple fix. It's the day where we can finally maybe kind of get back as we talk about the symbolism in the temple and what it means to us and how it points us towards Jesus Christ. And I just want to do a little side note that we're not going to talk about anything inappropriate. This will be a very sacred space as we talk about temple symbols, but it will all be within the correct context that we're allowed to talk about temples. And it will come from scripture and from quotes from prophets and apostles, and then from all of the work that Don Perry has done to write this book. It's going to be really fun. Welcome to the Sunday on Monday study group, a Deseret Bookshelf Plus original brought to you by LDS Living. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different because we only have one guest and this is our bonus episode. So there won't be any segments. We're just going to go to a Q&A style questions and answers for this episode. So we are going, I'm going to introduce you to Donald Perry. Hello, how are you? Good. Thank you very much, Tammy. We're so excited to have you on our podcast. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. Thank you. Have you already taught today? Because you're in a shirt and tie. You look very nice. Uh, I'm teaching a class on ancient temples in about two hours from now. And oh. I, I dress the part. Yes, I'm, you do. I'm here at BYU and I teach a class on ancient temples. Can I just come and sit in or do I have to pay tuition? No, no, come. We'll, we'll pay you to come. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might. That sounds so cool. Well, Don, here's things we first want to know, because I just want to know about your life. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what your life was like as a kid, where you're from, all that fun stuff. I grew up in a small town in Idaho called Melba, mm-hmm. like Melba Toast. Yeah. It's near Boise. It's a farm town. And I grew up learning to love potatoes. <laughs> For sure. In all their forms, in all their iterations, right? Uh, absolutely. What's your favorite potato dish? Oh, uh, hash browns. In fact. Uh, I'm famous for my making hash browns for my wife and children. That's awesome. Do you like them extra crunchy or just sort of soft? I like them crunchy. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> How about a hash brown casserole? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, nothing better. Delicious. How many siblings are in your family? There are seven children, six sons and one daughter. The daughter's the oldest. I'm in the middle. Right in the middle, middle mm-hmm. child. Yes. Okay. My father owned a supermarket and I worked in the store. I went to seminary. I love seminary. When I was a youth, I collected church books and read them and oh, wow. really, really loved reading the gospel. Do you remember the first book you got? Probably the three-volume work, Doctrines of Salvation, by Joseph Filling Smith. Mm-hmm. I still have the set. Oh, that's wonderful. And I have many more now, more books. Wow, that says a lot about you as a young kid, that that's the book you read. I think that's pretty incredible. My parents taught me to love the gospel. My parents were true, wonderful, faithful 
members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They, they taught me to love going to the temple, to pray, to read the scriptures. In fact, my father was my seminary teacher. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay, so then Don, when you graduated from high school, what was your plan? What did you want to do when you grew up? When I graduated from high school, I went to Rick's College. And my plan was to go on a mission as soon as I was of age. Mm-hmm. And to prepare for my mission, I took three uh, religion classes per semester at Rick's College. And wow. the religion teacher said, why are you doing this? You only need one. And I said, I need to prepare myself. So after your freshman year, did you serve a mission? I did. Tell me about that. I went to the temple as soon as I could. Uh, as soon as I was permitted to, I went to the Idaho Falls Temple. When I went through, my parents were five hours away in Melba. And I went through and I called them later that night. That was long before cell phones. And I said, Mom and Dad, guess what? I went through the temple. <laughs> and there was a pause. I was expecting them to be happy. Then Mom said, why didn't you invite us? I'd forgotten that that's what I should do. But <laughs> then in, uh, but you asked me which, uh, where I went on my mission. It was the Liverpool, England mission. Incredible. Wow. I'm curious which prophet sent you on your mission. President Joseph Fielding Smith. Very cool. Do you still still have have your mission call? Yes, I still do. And I have his signature. We were required to carry with us a document saying we were ordained missionaries. And I have his signature. And I still have that document. So was it really significant to you having read his books and now having him be the one that signed your mission paper and your certificate to preach? It was very, very powerful. He taught me so much about the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel. And those books are so powerful. I mean, for me, the things that I have learned from them, as I've studied some of those, I think, wow, does anyone else know this? Because <laughs> there's things in there I'm thinking, these are great books. So that's neat. I love that story. Okay, so after you came home from your mission, tell us what happened. I met my wife in a grocery store, and it was a cold meeting for both of us, not cold as in emotionally cold, it was cold as in we never met. I don't know if you want details or not. I do. I think it's awesome. Was it the grocery store your family owned? No, this was one in Provo. I was attending BYU. Okay. Uh, It was called Carson's Market at the time, and she was just this gorgeous, wonderful angel on earth. (laughs) And standing, looking at an apple pie can mix. And I walked up to her and I said, are you going to make me an apple pie? (laughs) And it was a little bold. It was, um, some people might say that was a little aggressive, but it's what I said. And she said, no, actually, I'm making an apple cake. So that kind of destroyed that idea. (laughs) But that's how I met her. And then we courted and dated and loved each other. And the time came when we, we were married in the Manti Temple. That's such a good story. Oh my gosh. If I was still single, I'd be hanging out in the apple pie section. <laughs> if I had known that, I probably would have. Oh my gosh, that is such a good story. I love love stories. This is awesome. You, when you were going to BYU, what were you studying when you met your wife? Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? 
Yes, I had inclinations in high school that I wanted to study Hebrew. Those inclinations were not fine-tuned. But looking back, I see the Lord, the Lord's hand and how he worked with me. For mm-hmm. example, when I read Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I learned that he learned Hebrew in the School of the Prophets. And I thought, right. that'd be really cool to learn Hebrew. Uh, but I didn't really know I could major in it in some form and later teach it. But the mm-hmm. Lord led me down this path. And looking back, I see how he led me. So you're at BYU and you're studying Hebrew. When you graduate from BYU, where do you go after that? Well, I earned a master's and a PhD. Part of my PhD, the coursework, took me to Jerusalem. And we lived there for a period of time, and I took a lot of classes. And I studied biblical Hebrew, something called Mishnaic Hebrew. That's the Hebrew from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. That's the Hebrew of the rabbis. Qumran Hebrew, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew. Uh, medieval Hebrew, that's the medieval rabbis, and then modern Hebrew. Well, Don, I love that you just told us there's all those different types of Hebrew, because when I tell people I study Hebrew, they automatically say, oh, can you speak Hebrew? I'm like, oh, no, no. I mean, I, I know biblical Hebrew. That's what I'm studying. But there are so many, like the world of Hebrew is huge. And the fact that you know all of that just blows my mind. I'll add that my emphasis is biblical Hebrew, the Mm -hmm. Hebrew of the Old Testament and Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew, which I just called Qumran Hebrew, and that's a very ancient Hebrew too. And all the Hebrew in those stages are all very, very similar, Mm -hmm. lest you be too impressed. Don't be impressed. (laughs) So you mentioned Dead Sea Scrolls then, and that type of Hebrew. So tell us about that, because we don't know a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So can you give us a little history on that, and then your role in translating and, and seeing them? It's so incredible. The Dead Sea Scrolls are actually not named correctly, Dead Sea Scrolls. They're called that because they were discovered near the Dead Sea. But they were discovered between the years 1947 and 1956 in 11 caves near Mm -hmm. the Dead Sea. And the caves yielded uh, 900 scrolls. Most of the scrolls are fragmented and much of them are gone. But some of the scrolls, like the Great Isaiah Scroll, is complete. Most of the scrolls are written on leather. Leather lasts a long time. You notice leather stored in caves near the Dead Sea has has lasted over 2,000 years. The leather had to be made from animals that were clean, according to the Law of Moses. So they would write on sheep or goat or deer skin. They would not write on camel skin, for example. And to look at them, there are no words to describe it. It is a gift from heaven to look at those scrolls in person. Did you get to touch them? Uh, You're not allowed to touch them. Did you sneak one? Pardon? Did you just kind of sneak a little bit? No, but but I sat, (laughs) uh, I'm right next to them and I carried them out of the vault with the curator and And that was a blessing. Wow. So tell me what was written on those scrolls. Of the 900 scrolls, 225 are books from the Old Testament. There are multiple copies of the Old Testament books so that different groups could, I'll say, check them out or borrow them and take them to their group to study them. 
For example, Isaiah was very popular among the Essene Jews who owned the Dead Sea Scrolls. So was the book of Psalms. So multiple copies so others could read and share them. Which makes a lot of sense now in context of First Nephi chapter 1. When they yes. go back, they wanted a copy. Yes. And their genealogy, but how fascinating that they were like, well, we got to we gotta take a copy of the scriptures with us when we're leaving. So they checked out a copy. I love that. That's good. So was it unusual for, the, for Laban to have them on brass plates as opposed to leather? Uh, we don't know how unusual it was, but it probably was uh, uh, not totally unique. But brass and gold, of course, are very expensive. And uh, we do know that they wrote on metal plates. Absolutely. Well, and that would make sense, too, if they knew they were going to have to cross waters. It seems like you'd want something a little more durable. I don't know, leather and water. I wonder if it would wash it out or something. That's interesting. So tell us how you got involved with translating the scrolls. In 1994, I was officially invited to become a member of the international team of translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Wow. By the, the head guy, his name is Emmanuel Tove. He's from Jerusalem. We've mm-hmm. become very good friends over the years. We've co-published eight books on the scrolls together. But I, I have to quickly add, it's nothing because of me. It's all the work of the Lord. It's all the hand of the Lord. So uh, it's not because of me. Sorry, I was stuck on Emmanuel Tove's name. I'm like, it's not lost on him that his last name is good, right? That's <laughs> all right. The good that, all the yes. good that he did. <laughs> yes, so... his, his name in Hebrew means good. Yeah, Tove, I think that's good so point. cool. Very good. But how did you specifically get invited? How did Emmanuel know you? I was in Jerusalem at the time. He invited me to his office. Mm-hmm. There's no reason it wasn't because I had special credentials. I did have a PhD, and that was my area of focus, but I cannot emphasize it's the Lord's hand. I'm wondering, was there one moment for you as you were translating him that you just had this, I mean, for lack of a better word, just a spiritual experience where you thought, this is it? Many, many moments. I just published a book, another book on the scrolls on the Isaiah Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a 500-page book. I published it with E.J. Brill from Leiden, the Netherlands, and I look at every aspect of the Dead Sea Scrolls book of Isaiah, and insight after insight. It's just a huge blessing. And this Isaiah scroll is 23 feet, 6 inches long. It contains all Mm -hmm. 66 chapters of Isaiah. Of course, back then, they didn't have chapters. They didn't have verses. They didn't even put vowels with the Hebrew characters, as you know, Tammy. Are there significant differences between the Isaiah we have today and the Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls? There are some differences. Uh, Most of them we would call orthographic. That means spelling. And -hmm. and by that, I mean, uh, if you look at the word gray, G-R-A-Y, and gray, G-R-E-Y, those are two different spellings of the word gray. So there are some orthographic spelling differences. There are some true textual variants that are significant. I would say maybe 50 total. Wow, that's pretty good. I do have one more question, though, about the Dead Sea Scrolls when you were doing it. What is one thing you learned from translating them that surprised you? One thing we learned from the text is 
that there are indeed a few textual variants in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I would not say there were too many. Overall, the, the Old Testament came forth in very excellent shape and excellent condition. I've got to quickly add, there's a verse in Nephi that talks about the Jews bringing forth the Bible. And it says, have we thanked them? Have you thanked the Jews for bringing forth the Bible to us? They were magnificent custodians of the scriptures. I love that you brought that up. We taught that specific thing this year when we went over that chapter in First Nephi to give thanks to the Jews for the record. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you. Excellent. So this whole idea of Dead Sea Scrolls and being a part of it, it's so wonderful to think that there's enough scripture for everyone, which I love. It also makes me think of the article of faith that, you know, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And so to be talking with someone who has seen some variants and who knows that you can actually take Hebrew and dig in a little deeper and find out some words and meanings. And it just really adds to the overall text and the meaning of the scripture that the prophets are writing. So when we get into this idea of adding to meaning of things, I want to add to the meaning of temple symbols. And you just finished writing a book and it's now out. You can get it at Desert Book and it's called 175 Temple Symbols. I always start out this podcast by saying, let's dig into the scriptures. Today, we're going to dig into the temple symbols. So I want to know this, Brother Perry, what prompted you to write 175 Temple Symbols? When I was in the Missionary Training Center, before I departed for my mission in England, we arose at 5 a.m. for a 6 a.m. temple endowment session in the Salt Lake Temple. Afterwards, we all met together. There were just less than 300 of us total. And President Harold B. Lee came and spoke to us about the temple. And he, he led us. We were in the temple. And he permitted us to ask questions. And President Lee, he had his scriptures in hand. And he'd flip open the scriptures. And he'd say, oh, the answer to that is here in wherever. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah. The Doctrine and Covenants. I don't remember specifically where he would answer the questions. We were not permitted to have paper and pencil to take notes. But I do remember vividly that he answered the questions from the scriptures. And that piqued my interest in studying symbols of the temple. That's so neat. One of the things we've recently been studying in the Come Follow Me lessons is Jesus coming to the American continent. And he comes to the temple in Bountiful in the Book of Mormon. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on the symbolism of that, that Christ came to a temple. When there's a temple building on earth, he will appear to his saints, the pure in heart, in the temple. Mm-hmm. He won't appear in the city square or in a park. However, if there's not a dedicated temple space, he will appear in a grove or on a mountaintop, which are also sacred sites. And there are great examples of that in Scripture, of appearing in grove and mountaintops. So thank you for bringing that up. The symbolism of temples is powerful. And the first time I went to the temple, I didn't even know what I was getting into. We didn't have a temple prep course back then. And I was really nervous to go to the temple. I didn't really know anything. And it took me a couple of years to really just settle down and absorb and feel in the temple. I wasn't even looking at temple symbols at all. 
And I had been going to the temple for years. I went on my mission. I came home. I tried to go on a regular basis while I was single. And I can remember the first time a temple symbol actually stood out to me was well into my 30s. I mean, I had been going to the temple for many, many years. And I can remember I had been preparing to teach an institute lesson. And I was reading the book Temples and Cosmos by Hugh Nibley. And I remember what really stood out to me was his chapter on squares and circles. The timing of it was interesting because truly that next day, I actually ended up going to the Bountiful Temple in Utah. And as I was sitting there, I looked around and there are squares and circles everywhere, even in their planters outside of the temple. It's a square planter with a circle inside holding a tree. And so if you want to know more about that, you should go read Temples and Cosmos because it tells you why a square and why a circle is so important. In fact, one of your chapters is you tell us about the importance of a square and a circle in the temple. So can you tell us a little bit about that? This is our temple fix. and I'm so excited to talk about temples with you. Thank you. Let me mention circles. And let me be clear on this. Some circles found on temple architecture or patterns in carpets or on the walls, exterior or interior or on the windows are decorative. But some, in my view, are meant to represent something sacred. And a circle represents eternity because it has no beginning and no end. I get that primarily from the prophet Joseph Smith, who at one point, I'm going from memory here, showed his wedding ring and said it has no beginning and no end, just as eternity. But Mm -hmm. there are scriptures several really fun scriptures that pertain to the circle and endless one and so on. Perfect. What about the square? The square also has some very sacred meaning and very sacred places. One thing I can mention that's very public, and that is at a baptism. The person conducting the baptism raises his right arm to the square. This Mm -hmm. has symbolic meaning, and I won't go into that meaning right now, but it has great symbolism. We also raise our arm to sustain people, sustain our prophet, and sustain other church leaders. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention also the squared circle. Some scholars have studied squaring the circle in a ritual sense. We see that with the 12 oxen. In the Solomonic Temple, it's not his temple, but we call it the Temple of Solomon. It's the Mm -hmm. Lord's Temple. But we see 12 oxen. Three of each oxen are facing the cardinal directions, east, west, north, and south, and they're forming a square. But notice the oxen are looking outward, and then on their back is this large body of water. It's so large, they call it a In Hebrew, a yam or an ocean or a sea. And there, very sacred rituals were conducted, but the 12 oxen represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I think I put that in my book. And whenever I write things in the book, I use scriptural prophets or Latter day prophets and apostles to give me support. If I do not, it's my opinion. If you disagree with the opinion, just throw it out. That's fine. (laughs) But please don't disagree with what the prophets say. But that idea of the squared circles found in the font. And we have the same thing in our fonts now. There's so many things to say, but we don't have time. No. (laughs) I love that. I love it. I love it. I probably said too much already. 
<laughs> oh, well, I don't know. Maybe people will just hear it. For me, my mind's swirling because I'm like, yes, I know why the oxen. Okay, I'm just talking, I'm just going to say really quick. When he said yum, I knew what it meant. I'm like, excellent. Oh Way my gosh, go. this is such a great moment in my life. Excellent. Good job, Tammy. Well, Don, I will say this is kind of neat because what I like about your book is what you just said. You do support everything with scripture and quotes, and just like Harold B. Lee did for you, you patterned it beautifully. So, Thank you. what I want to do. I just want to jump in to some of my favorite chapters or Please. topics in your book and just get a little more from you about it and maybe help our listeners to get excited about this book and get excited about the temple. That's really the goal for them to, when they go to the temple, to look for these signs and these symbols. So the first one that stood out to me is the Alpha and Omega. Tell us a little bit about that and then the parallel to it in Hebrew, because I think that's pretty powerful. Alpha and Omega are Greek letters of the alphabet. In English, it would be like A and Z. And the idea is Jehovah or Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega. Mm -hmm. And the concept there is the beginning and the end or the eternal one. He's an eternal God. So that's the main concept there. And that's neat because that's that symbol is on the Salt Lake Temple. I am Alpha and Omega. And yes. so just the idea of being the beginning and the end is beautiful. Then you go into, I really like this on page 45, and there's quite a few pages, 45 through 53. You go through so many different temples and just point out things that are architecturally different on this temple versus all of the other temples. And I'm just curious to know, is there one temple that stood out to you that you like thought, oh, now that's a neat architectural difference? When I conducted this study, I just found it fascinating. And I think this is a very important part of my book. And I've had people tell me, thank you, thank you for pointing that out. I never realized that. Now, to answer your question, the Meridian Idaho Temple, that's mm -hmm. close to where I was raised. They have the Idaho state flower, the syringa, which is a motif of that temple. They also have many mountains featured inside in the murals. But number one in my mind is the Salt Lake Temple with all of its symbols of sunstones and moonstones and earthstones and stars and clouds with rays coming and the spires. The three spires on the east are a little higher than the three spires on the west. All of these have very important symbolism. Why are the spires? Why are three higher and three lower? What's the symbolism the, the, of that? The three Higher spires represent the Melchizedek priesthood presidency, and the three lower are the Aaronic priesthood. So the Melchizedek priesthood has a grander power, as we know. Neat. I did not know that. That's so cool. And in your book, I did appreciate how the Idaho Falls Temple, you said that the architecture, John Fetzer Sr., he was inspired to design the temple to reflect his idea of the ancient Nephite temple. And I did not know that. And I've been to that temple a couple of times. One other thing on this item is I could not put all 100 plus temples in that section. So they're representative. Oh, that's interesting. So there's definitely more. I want you to tell us a little bit or teach us about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. We've made reference to that in uh, one of our episodes, the idea of the mercy seat being about compassion and just the beauty of it. And so you spend you know, two pages telling us about the Ark of the Covenant. Teach us about that. The temple, ancient and modern, features many Jesus Christ-focused symbols. 
And there are many symbols of Jesus Christ in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred piece of furniture located in the Holy of Holies of the ancient temple. I will mention here, I'll give you a little Hebrew since you like Hebrew. Please. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called Kaporet. Kaporet comes from the same root as Kafar, which means atonement. Some scholars think it should be translated something like this, throne of atonement, because we know it is a throne or a seat. That's why it's called the mercy seat. Mm-hmm. And it's Jehovah's throne. And all of our temples teach us beautifully and powerfully about Jesus Christ's atonement. And the Ark of the Covenant was made of gold, and they had three grades of gold in antiquity that we know of. And the Ark of the Covenant was made of the finest, purest gold. Mm -hmm. Inside of the Ark was a box, and it contained three items, all three of which point to some aspect of Jesus Christ. There was the rod of Aaron, there was the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and a container of manna. So they're all symbols of Christ, and gold is a symbol of Christ's excellence and eternal, eternality, and so on. Uh, you know, I had a, after we talked about the word mercy, I had a woman reach out to me and send me a private message, and she said, where is mercy in the law of Moses? Like, what represents mercy in there? Is, is it at the beginning, at the end? Like, how do we play into that law? And it was really kind of fun to study that and look at it and realize that you, when you have all of the rituals that take place at the tabernacle and everything that has to happen, and then the priest goes in, what I thought was beautiful about it was that mercy is at the end. It's in the Holy of Holies, and that's where it's applied. After you've done everything you can do, then this mercy comes. And so there's so much beauty in that symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. And what you wrote about it was just beautiful. And what you just taught us about it. And then the symbolism in the things in the ark is incredible. I like that. So thank you for sharing it. Okay, so the next part. Now, I loved this because, again, I love what things mean and colors. You go through all of the symbolism of colors in Scripture. And I thought this was fascinating. So here's what I want you to do with the colors. Because you just went over what gold was. So tell us a little bit about the idea of what silver and white. Because we've talked about scarlet on the podcast before. That's my favorite color to teach about. But tell us about silver and white. And why did you include this? Tell me your thoughts and feelings about color in scripture. Color is meaningful. We live in a world of colors. And colors mean something to us. And the prophets interpreted some of the colors, not all of them, and gave us meaning. And the prophets have said white represents purity. White also represents light. The temple, by the way, is the place par excellence of light. It's the place where we go and we receive great light for our souls and our bodies. So that's white. White is used several times in the scriptures. The high priestly vestments under the law of Moses, uh, he, he had four vestments. The first four he put on were white. And then he put on four others that were colorful. The priestly vestments, so that was the high priestly vestments. The priestly vestments, they had four priestly vestments, and they were all the color white. So uh, as far as silver, silver is a precious metal. And silver is beautiful. People are attracted to silver. But silver is not as precious as gold. 
And under the Mosaic law system, they had gradations of holiness. Space was graded, and they put metals according to the area of sanctity. Mm-hmm. So silver was used in the courtyard, but gold was used in the holy place, and the most excellent pure gold was in the holy of holies. Well, I think what's cool about when you wrote about these colors is that color throughout the scripture is intentional. and. Now I want to talk about this one because this is really cool. And I think there's so many applications to our day. You talked about on page 201, prayer, and you have directional, praying toward the temple. But tell me a little bit about this and really what it looks like in our lives today. Directional prayer is fascinating. Remember, Isaiah called the temple the house of prayer. And when Joseph Smith restored the temple with all of its power and glory and meaning and its Jesus Christ-focused ordinances, he also called it a house of prayer. So the temple is so powerful that many ancient saints would posture their body if they're outside of the temple, say they're down the block or in the next city or in the next country, they would posture their body so they're praying toward the temple. Now, actually, President Wilford Woodruff mentioned this in the dedicatory prayer of the Salt Lake Temple. Yes. So this is such a powerful practice. And the idea is the temple is on your mind as you pray to God. You included that in here. And so from the dedicatory prayer of the Salt Lake Temple, he says, Heavenly Father, when thy people shall not have the opportunity of entering this holy house to offer their supplications unto thee, and they are oppressed and in trouble, surrounded by difficulties or assailed by temptation, and shall turn their faces towards this holy house and ask thee for deliverance, for help, for thy power to be extended in their behalf. That was incredible, especially the world we live in now. Just this idea. I loved that. Because here's what it made me think of. Are we required to literally turn every time we pray facing the Salt Lake Temple? Or are there other things that are more subtle Like, for example, having a current temple recommend, even though you can't go to the temple. That, to me, is a way I have my face toward the temple. I agree with that totally. Thank you. And I think President Russell and Nelson cited what you just cited. Oh, he did. Yep. In the last conference about Mm -hmm. temples. You're totally right. Now, the temple's so powerful in the lives of the ancients. And now, even now, many religious Jews pray toward Jerusalem, where the temple was, and many of the synagogues are architecturally oriented so that when the Jews are praying in the synagogue, they're facing Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And then Islam also has a directional prayer toward Mecca. You probably know that too. Well, it goes back to one of my favorite stories about Lot, you know, in which way he was facing and, and facing toward the temple would have saved a lot of heartache, I think. And so... I just love that you included that in your book. I really appreciate your stating that having a temple recommend is very proper interpretation of facing the temple, having your heart temple-centric. The other thing I really thought was neat in continuing with this idea was you talked about gestures of approach. So tell me what that is, because that was a new term, and I thought we've got to go over that. The gestures of approach, you notice that ritual, anciently and modern, contains many gestures. In the Old Testament, they had a series of gestures that would build upon each one. They come from the Lord, 
And they start with the anointing and washing ritual and the clothing ritual and the law sacrifice. Anciently, they would sacrifice animals according to God's prescriptions and commandments. Those are all rituals that would prepare you to get closer and closer to the temple and hence to God. And you have offering of incense and the rituals in the Holy of Holies. Oh, I love that. So then in modern day, we teach our youth a gesture of approach. And the idea behind this is pretty powerful. And that's the gesture of when they go and do baptisms for the dead, right? What are they asked to do? Notice to to attend the temple, the youth are asked to be living a clean life and striving to keep God's commandments to enter the temple. And notice the gestures of approach start out further away from the most sacred spots and often in a lower horizontal place. As you approach God, you ascend Mm -hmm. spiritually and sometimes literally. So you go, you move closer to God in His holiness spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and it's demonstrated physically. Well, now I love that. And one of the physical gestures of approach is taking off our shoes. Is that, that's a gesture of approach, right? That's definitely a gesture of approach that's found in the Bible with Mm -hmm. both Moses and Joshua. And I thought that was neat when you wrote that in the book. That's one of your first gestures of approach is removing these shoes. And I thought, huh, all this time, I just thought it was to keep the carpets clean. When I was a kid and I went to do baptisms for the dead, I really thought that. And it's beautiful when you teach the youth that at a young age, at age 11, our sweet little kids are being taught a gesture of approach. There is symbolism in removing your shoes. So I appreciated that chapter so much. It really made things more significant rather than just a practice like, oh, it's just what we've been doing. There is reason for all of these things. So, and I love that our youth can participate in that. Now, back then, only a certain percentage of ancient Israel could actually attend the temple itself. Actually, Mm -hmm. when I say the temple, go inside the tabernacle structure. All worthy people were allowed to go into the courtyard. But now, of course, through the restoration, we're back to the the full temple blessings for males and females of all 12 tribes and having the privileges of wearing sacred vestments and participating in in God's holy ordinances. Well, and as you just said, all worthy men and women, I can't help but think how grateful I was the way you ended your book. And it just happened to be a W because the very end of your book, you talk about women and the ancient temple women then and now. And so I really want to talk to you about that. Uh, When I've given firesides and presentations at Education Week and in other settings, I've noticed that both males and females do not fully comprehend the power and significance of women in the temple setting anciently or in modern days. And of course, we cannot speak of modern days other than what our prophets and apostles have said. So I thought, I need to make sure this is clear to men and women so they'll see how powerful the sisters are in the temple setting, anciently and modern. And I have a section on Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Hannah and Mm -hmm. Anna. And I have a section on Eve and how important she is. And then sisters in the modern world. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, her obedience to going to the temple helped Jesus frame his who he was and what he was supposed to do and the great atonement. That was teaching through example. And I'm sure she taught him through the word, through the Holy Ghost and reading scriptures with him. But taking him to the temple regularly helped Jesus learn I think what I love the most about the way you ended this book was when you were talking about how women were able to participate and worship with men in this ancient tabernacle. So tell me your thoughts on how men and women were able to worship anciently together and then today how we're able to do that. The greatest scriptural text on this question is 1 Samuel chapter 1. This chapter features Hannah. She has the greatest character zone. That's how we say it. She's the most important character in that chapter. And Hannah, uh, we know from this chapter and other texts that Hannah and the families could go into the temple together to worship, together, walk up near the altar of sacrifice, move about the courtyard. This is true in our day. Sisters and brothers get to go to the temple. President Russell and Nelson made a magnificent statement on this, and I include it in the book, about how sisters and brothers worship, and they, they're both invited to go to the celestial room at the same time. There's no hierarchy. It's not men first. It's sisters and brothers together get to worship together and love the Lord and go to the celestial room, which is God's living room, Mm-hmm. and which symbolizes the temple in heaven or the celestial kingdom. Absolutely. It's beautiful. In this last chapter, you cite, you cite 13 different things about Israelite women, and all of them were so incredible. I think the one that stood out to me the most, though, was that women could be a Nazarite. I had no idea. So that one blew my mind that a woman could be a Nazarite. That was very cool. And do you know what a Nazarite is? Under the law of Moses, mm-hmm. it's a female or male who wants extra spiritual experiences, especially connected with God in the temple. It separates them and sets them apart from the rest of the community and the world. And they have to shave their head. They have a vow of food that they're only allowed to partake of. Is that right? Yes. Yes, they have a vow. We learn that particularly from the Dead Sea Scrolls book of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and the prophet Samuel, the yeah. little boy Samuel. Because he was raised as a Nazarite, is he that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, this is really cool teaching. For those of you listening, I highly recommend you study that. That's on page 274. Is there anything specific about the book that you want to share? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's a very important concept that I think uh, sometimes we forget. It's found in Doctrine and Covenants section 124. I believe it's verse 39, and that is that God has always commanded His people to build temples. The first temple experience was Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden was like a temple. Not a temple with walls, but it was a temple or sacred space nonetheless. And in that context, I'd like to share a couple of quotes by President Russell M. Nelson, and here's quote number one, quote, temple patterns are as old as human life on earth, 
Actually, the plan for temples was established even before the foundation of the world. End of quote. The second quote also is very powerful. It's in one sentence. I wish I could give you more. President Russell M. Nelson said, quote, The antiquity and modernity of temple activity blend and bridge the gulf of time. Even the newest temples closely relate to ancient times. End of mm-hmm. quote. And what I'm trying to share with all of us is our temples are restoration through the prophet and seer Joseph Smith. There's one place in the book where I show two dozen or so elements from the ancient temple that Joseph Smith, the prophet, restored through Revelation. I like those quotes so much, especially where it says it spans the time. It's interesting because a lot of people think that maybe the temple is a modern thing. It's something that Joseph just decided to build or do. And, and we know it's in the, you know, in the scriptures, but what I like is how you just brought up that the Lord has always commanded his people to build the temple, always. And you have cited some examples. You talked to us about Adam and Eve, how they had a temple. And there are other people in the Bible that have had temples, right? Absolutely. And we have some great instruction from our living prophets regarding this, of who has had temples in the past. And think about it. Temples are absolutely essential to get us to heaven. We learn keys, we learn concepts, and we have rituals that will get us to the temple in heaven, which is John the Revelator's name for the celestial kingdom. So they're absolutely essential to us. I kind of feel like it's my school of the prophets. I always think it would have been cool to be there and to be a part of that. But for me, when I go there, that's how I feel like I'm taught. Like so much more knowledge and more light is coming to me than I ever. And it took years to get to that point. That's another thing. Like if some people feel frustrated that they're not learning, it's okay. Feel the spirit. Earlier, you talked about how your knowledge of the temple, you've learned line upon line. And I think that's that's absolutely how God works with all of us, line upon line. I could not have digested all that I know now when I was 21. There's no way. So it's, God is good to us that way. I really have loved learning line upon line in the temple. And it's been a journey uh, from my first experience in the Idaho Falls Temple and until now. And I'm reminded of a statement that President David O. McKay said to President Boyd K. Packer. After completing an endowment session, President McKay remarked, quote, I think I'm beginning to understand it, end of quote. I find this to be remarkable, that even our prophet, after decades of faithful temple attendance, was still gaining understanding of the temple. And that's the power of the temple. The temple is just so powerful with, uh, with the knowledge and understanding and light, and it's an endowment of light and we continue to learn and gain knowledge. Well, thank you so much, Don. Like, I appreciate this conversation. So my last question for you, Brother Perry, is why do you believe after all these years? Why do you believe that it's true? For me, it's not belief. It's I know without a doubt. I have no doubt. It's because of the power of the Holy Ghost. I cannot deny that power. His whispering It's true. This is true. When I first went through the temple, I didn't comprehend very much, but I knew through the Holy Ghost, this is God's work. This is His holy house. So 
The power of the temple is there because of Jesus Christ and his atonement. We can become eternal families because of the atonement. It's through that power that we are sealed. Wow. Amen. I will absolutely amen that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. That, that's the end of our podcast. This has been such a delightful day for me and one that I will truly never forget. And thank you for paying the price. It has, it's changed my life. And I think a lot of people who've studied your writings, it has changed their lives as well. It's just powerful. So thank you for all that you've done. And, and it's been a lot of work. I know that. At least, I mean, I know that because it took me a year to learn the alphabet. So I can only imagine all the years you've been studying and how much time and effort you've put into that. So thank you. The Sunday on Monday study group is a Deseret Bookshelf Plus original brought to you by LDS Living. It's written and hosted by me, Tammy Uselak Hall. And today my guest was Donald Perry. You can see a picture of him and read more about him at ldsliving.com slash Sunday on Monday. Our podcast is produced by Katie Lambert and Erica Free. It is recorded and mixed by Mix at Six Studios. And our executive producer is Aaron Hallstrom. Thanks for being here, everyone. We'll see you next week. And remember to look towards and look forward to the temple. And some of the symbol of it, sorry, I'm gonna get that word. <laughs> and some of the symbolism is obvious. Okay, sorry. And some of the symbolism is obvious and some of it isn't. And so today we're gonna dig into some of that symbolism. Wow, we say that word a lot. <laughs> sorry. I'm just not realizing that. Ha, <sighs> okay.